Have you ever experienced something so crippling in your life that has made you feel broken? I have. Are you someone who has a giving heart but is struggling to feel good themselves? Are you consistently putting your needs aside to take care of everyone else? If so, you're not alone. Giving starts with giving to yourself so that you are able to give of yourself to other people. Isn't it time you took back control and discovered what makes you tick? Join me in my journey and find out how you can feel better about yourself, live your best life, and share that with others. Thinking of yourself, it doesn't make you selfish. It makes you brave. I'm Nelia, and this is the Giving Starts With You podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Giving Starts With You podcast. I'm your host, Nelia Hutt, and I just want to say how grateful I am that you're coming on here today and just listening to another powerful, powerful expert guest today. Today, I have a new friend. Her name is Susan O'Million. How are you, Susan? I'm great. Nice to be here. Nice to meet you. I love meeting new people. And what better way than to have these powerful conversations that can actually help people. So I want to let you guys know a little bit about Susan. Oh, Susan, she is an attorney. She is an author. She is a motivational speaker who has advocated for over 40 years to end violence against women. She has worked as a sexual assault victim advocate, represented domestic violence victims in divorce proceedings, and litigated sex discrimination cases. With the death of her 19-year-old niece, Maggie, killed by her ex-boyfriend in 1999, Susan's work became more immediate and personal. She vowed to help women move on after abuse, as Maggie could not. As originator and facilitator of My Avenging Angel workshops, based on the idea that living well is the best revenge. I love that. Susan has developed. Oh, sorry, I'm I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps because this topic <laughs> is so, so amazing. Um, Susan has helped hundreds of women over the last 20 years take the journey from victim to survivor and to thriver. The motivational model she has developed is included in her trilogy of Thriver Zone nonfiction books and her best revenge series of novels is inspired by the true events of her niece's story. Susan, first of all, I'd like to say that I'm very sorry about what your family has gone through. And I cannot imagine and will not pretend to imagine how that felt for you. But I am so happy that you are here now to help us get through it and help victims now. So thank you so much you. for thank the you. work thank that you're doing. I really appreciate that. So today we're going to talk about the journey beyond abuse. We're going to talk about how we can help each other. This show is all about how we can give to ourselves and how we can give to other people. And sometimes people think when they think of giving, they think of money or they think of, you know, all of these things. And it's about time. It's about including people. It's about conversation. So Susan is here to talk to us today about how we can learn if we are the victim, but how we can help others too. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, tell us something about your niece. What was Maggie like? Oh, Maggie was incredible. She was 19 years old. She uh, was very, very bright. She was very beautiful. It's funny, I don't have a picture of her. It's up on my on my website, thriverzone.com. Um, and she was a um, one of those kids that was just phenomenal. She was a problem solver. She had a lot of friends. She was very outgoing. She was very clear that she wanted to do something um, to help people when she was younger, at a fairly young age, about nine or 10, she, we'd have conversations about being a lawyer, what, you know, I was practicing what my cases were about and, and talking about the clients that I was working with. And I, you know, she'd ask about what their situation was. And she's like, and Susan, that is so unfair. We have to do something about that. <laughs> and uh, kind of, kind of ahead of her age and of her times, um, particularly for young women at the time, 
Um, but I think what was the most stunning about her and the most remarkable and unforgettable is that she had, the, had this presence. And I think for a lot of people that find out many of her girlfriends and, and close friends and, and also um, family members that we just sort of miss her presence. Uh, it was I, I usually saw her at Christmas time. I, I, uh, she lives in she lived in Michigan. I live in Connecticut, where my, my most of my family is in, in Michigan. And I'd see her once a year at Christmas time, and it was always that Maggie would be there. Um, and um, so since her death, um, you know, at Christmas we keep sort of waiting for her to walk in the door, like what you know what her presence is sort of missed. Um, but she was a problem solver. She had been with this man for a short period of time. She called him immature. Um, she did, she knew the, she knew the warning signs of abuse. I would say maybe not the, the whole laundry list, but she got the idea. Um, and she didn't want to be with him anymore. Um, but he wouldn't accept the end of the relationship, which actually is one of the warning signs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, the school she attended was a very good school, but they didn't have a lot of places. This is 20 years ago, although even then they, they were behind, but, um, and she didn't perceive that anybody in the campus would um, would pay attention or do something about this because he had never physically assaulted her mm -hmm. um, before he killed her. Um, so there wasn't any, you know, um, wranglings and um, uh, physical intimidation, but a lot of manipulation, including that he wouldn't let her go. So I think my niece decided that's because nobody was, she perceived no one was going to be able to help her. Um, and most of the campus didn't, didn't have no conversation about this. There wasn't really a woman's center to call, but she would solve the problem all by herself. Um, and that was her responsibility. Um, and so I think she went to his room one more time. He sort of coached, coached her, coaxed her into his room, back to his dorm room that night and to tell him one more time to leave her alone. That's what I think she was doing. That, that would be Maggie. And she didn't know he had a gun. Mm -hmm. um, the gun store owner where he bought the gun, this is in Michigan, which is a hunting state. So he bought a hunting rifle, which was fairly easy to get in Michigan. And the gun store owner, um, he gave, he gave the gun store owner his college dormitory address. This is a small town, a small college. Everybody knew that was a, to a college dormitory address. And the gunster owner had no legal obligation and obviously no moral obligation to call the school and say, oh, by the way, it's kind of odd, but um, this kid just bought a gun. And the, the college officials told us pretty clearly that if they had that information, they would have had probable cause to search his room because there was a no gun, no gun policy on the campus at that time. So all these little things that sort of mixed together um, made it made it very clear that this campus was not prepared. Um, she was not thinking that he was going to hurt her. Um, and, you know, it's that thing where we, we as women particularly trust and we trust and we trust until we don't trust. Um, but he was no longer a person that she could have trusted. You know, Maggie would never have gone to um, a, a stranger's dorm room um, by herself at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> mm -hmm. But she went to that dorm room of somebody who used to be someone she cared about and cared about her or something. I don't know how she, right. but so, um, so really, you know, part of her story is really that when I, when I go and talk about her or, or I present, and particularly on college campuses, I talk about the warning signs. It's a really good example of people sort of understanding, because I think the same way that I wrote the novel about loosely based on Maggie, people sometimes get more information and more, more stuff for their own self care by reading stories. So that was really, um, and I think that's what I've been trying to do. That's the one piece I've been trying to do since Maggie was killed is to use her, her situation, uh, not only for other young women, but also for parents to understand this better. You know, don't send your kid to a college in, you know, a visit to see whether they want to go there and only ask about how the, how's the food and what's the dorm rooms look like. You know, mm -hmm. is there a student center on campus? Is there information about this, you know, uh, what, what's out there? What's available if son or daughter um, has this problem on campus? And if it's not there, then don't send your kid there. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Great that's point. the other kind of information. And the second thing I've been trying to do is what you said in the bio is that I've been trying as Maggie, I couldn't help Maggie um, Maggie couldn't move on that I've been helping other women to move on. And that's really 
the the work that I've been doing and kind of not something I was supposed to do in this lifetime. I I don't have the kind of training for it. Although the more I enter into this realm and the more women I work with, I think it's just my energy and my own um, my own experience of okay, if something bad happens to you, you're gonna you can move on and do something good. And um, that's what that living well is best revenge is um, to me. Um, and and for many of the women, you know, you're never going to get back at him. He's never going to change. Just, you know, even if we take him to court, you know, you can throw him in jail, but it's still the same. But you can show him, which is going to drive him crazy, that you can do well without him. And don't what, we love that? What an important, <laughs> yes. What an important message. And the work you're doing is so... <sighs> Like, I respect it so much because it's so important. And the more people, the more people out there that are there to help these women, the better, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the better. And yeah, I would love to go over some of the warning signs and how do you, like, how do you talk about this after? How do you go from being a victim to a survivor? That's the first step. It's a huge mm-hmm. step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when I first started in this movement, um, the word survivor, people didn't like that word. It wasn't around, it was a victim. But when I first started working in this in this uh, area in the early 1900, 1800s, <laughs> 1980s, um, there weren't really a lot of recognition of victims. I mean, there weren't victim rights. Um, there, there was a there was the perpetrator, the offender, and his rights or her rights to in the court system. Which you know, I've never done criminal defense work. I probably never will, <laughs> but I understand that. But there was really no recognition of victim rights. So, and in some way, my niece never really identified as a victim. Um, it it might have been helpful to the people around her if she did. Um, because then they might have taken notice. Who knows? But um, so the identifying as a victim is really important. And for a lot of women, particularly women that I've worked with back in the day when, um, you know, 40 years ago when I started doing this work, um, there weren't even laws that defined domestic violence. Um, I, I can remember I was in my 20s or so, um, maybe out of college, um, we didn't have rape crisis centers. We didn't have domestic violence shelters. We didn't even have words from, we had work for rape, um, kind of wife abuse or battered women or something was one of them. But so even that progression to say, these are the words. Now we have a new, a couple new words, actually. Um, we now call it sexual assault and we, and we divide it into different gradations. So it's sexual, touching is first, is a fourth degree sexual assault, second degree, third degree. Um, and so that, and up to first degree, which is forced intercourse. So we now have a way to sort of separate it out so that women say, well, he, no, he didn't have intercourse with me against my will. So I guess I wasn't assaulted. Well, you, yes, you were. If he put his hands on you, he didn't consent. So just breaking that out. And then the other thing that I think has happened with domestic violence is we actually have a word for it. There was no word for it. Um, and, um, and now we actually have been working on a couple of other words, the one that's been coming up recently in some parts of the world, particularly, I think in, in the United Kingdom and, well, well you're part of the United Kingdom, <laughs> but more, more in Scotland and England is coercive control, which sort of gives a little more definition to some of what Maggie Mess was is manipulation, mm. sometimes not physical, although it can be physical intimidation, but it's more that emotional kind of like brainwashing. Issue brainwashing, financial abuse. So coercive control began to define it in a way that the court system might be able to deal with it or in the particularly in the family law courts. A lot of, a lot of men come in when I was representing women um, who were victims, they'd come in and, and want custody of their child. And the woman's trying to explain to the judge, well, you know, yes, he's not hearing the child physically, but she, the children are watching him beat the shit, pardon me, yeah. beat okay. me up. So, yeah, so um, I can that see, has an impact. I can so, see yeah. it's, they're not labels, but they are descriptions. And I can see that how that would be helpful because yeah. I'm sure the way that you help someone in those different categories is slightly different. And I think that um, sometimes when people say the word victim, sometimes it comes with a negative connotation attached. Right. And it's, it's like something's wrong like, with you. You did. Yeah, or right. they're weak. Yep. Or, you know, I way prefer some of these other things that you were, you know, that people are calling it now. 
And I think that it's important that people know that victims are not weak. We just, it's it's tough, you know, because you want to use all the right words and you want to use all the right descriptions. I hate saying labels, but but it's true what people automatically judge when when you use victim versus something else. And right. I think it, at the end of the day, we just really need to need to realize that they're just people who are put in a situation that they did not consent to. Right. Somebody has t- done something to them. I think the other part about identifying as a victim is that particularly years ago when I first started working with women, and still today, you'll still meet women that say, I didn't know this was abuse. I thought it was just something I was doing. I thought, you know, he didn't he didn't like the fact that I didn't have dinner on the table, and that's why he hit me. Um, so even to have that kind of conversation where you say, yeah, victim might f- make you feel like you're a weak person, you know, that you're going to be perceived as weak, but um, the personal is political, you know, there's this is a larger entity, and so it's not just happening to you. And um, and when and then you start to put those words to it, then you can say, yeah. And then not only that, it's not it's happening to you, but the impact of even witnessing this on on your children. Um, and yes, that is that is a form of child abuse to watch your mother. And I, you know, I've met men in prison for the rest of their lives because they did bad things. But they also talk about how they their father killed their mother in front of them when they were four years old. And gee, I wonder how why he got into a, into gang violence and ended up killing. So this is these are all the impacts. So you want to make sure that the person is not just saying, "Oh, this is all about me, and this has happened to me because I'm a bad person." You want them to see that no, there's a definition, there's a whole, and there are people who can help you not only to help you get out and perhaps prosecute this person and maybe get you in a better place, but to also help you heal. Um, many of the women I work with, and I've also done work with male offenders of domestic violence offenders in education, in psychoeducational groups, they will tell you that this is not the first thing that's happened to them, that their trauma history is extensive. Not everybody, but with rare exception with the men, um, they would, you know, I would ask them, what was your childhood like? And they would generally tell me um, that they were um, uh, witnesses, at least witnesses to domestic violence of their mother. Uh, or, you know, or, or father or whatever, uh, or their grandmother or something, and that they had, there may have also been child abuse. So that impact, which we're just understanding better, um, adverse child experiences, how does it affect you um, uh, psychologically, medically, and uh, emotionally the rest of your life? Um, it's huge. And so those kinds of stop gaps, you know, so it's also called polyvictimization. There's more than just one victimization, and it kind of builds on it. So that you know, when you feel as a child that you're not worth anything, that might make you vulnerable for the relationship in which you're going to be treated like you're not worth anything. And then the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And sometimes it's generational. You could see that, particularly with the men, they would say, "Oh yeah, my father did that, and my grandfather did that, the same thing." So I'm just following a pattern. So to break all those cycles is to get people to see, yes, uh, to identify as a victim so you can say that it's not just um, what happened to me uh, or that I caused it or that, in fact, um, God forbid, I I, um, I wanted it in some way. Mm. Yeah, because sometimes it's like it doesn't always have to be murder. It could be just parents yelling extensively yeah. at each other. It's going to change the child. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's going to make... Them- well, they talk about it even even fetuses in the womb can... can experience the the noise level and the agitation the mother's body is going through yes. you know all kinds of of uh, trauma responses yeah it's it definitely has been it's kind of like what they call fetal alcohol syndrome the same thing you know mm-hmm. the fe- alcohol running through the woman's body uh with a child is still in uh is still in utero uh it's going to affect that child absolutely we don't i don't think we even know all of this no. i mean we're just like at the very yeah. tip of understanding um, why, why some of us, you know, really struggle through life. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even, even when it comes to, let's say al- alcoholic families, they also have groups for children of parents of alcoholics. Yes. So it just yes. goes to show you that it's the whole family unit. How can you not yes. be affected? Everybody will see a different perspective, but of course you're going to be affected. And I think it's really important that y- you said today that 
sometimes people don't realize that it's wrong. It's okay to not have dinner ready. You shouldn't be yep. punished for that. And we need to make that clear. We need to teach people about that because otherwise they won't see that there's something wrong before it gets to that point. Right. So how, how does someone go? I mean, I know we can't, you know, talk about and explain all of this in one episode, but how <laughs> does somebody go from being a victim to a survivor? What's the main perspective change? Like, how they think of themselves or not blame? Um, yeah, I think, well, th there's a woman named um, Dr. Judith Herman, who is a psychiatrist who I met many years ago, and I've read her book several times. It's called um, um, Recovery from Trauma. And she was the first woman, the first woman psychiatrist, um, the first psychiatrist who was a woman who identified and connected um, what used to be called, um, um, you know, trauma from war, which was soldiers coming out of Civil War, the First World War, Second World War, um, mm -hmm. and certainly Vietnam. We didn't have words then yet, but in Vietnam sort of got, gave us the words of post-traumatic, uh, post-trauma um, uh, post syndrome, PTSD. So she's the first person that connected PTSD, this theory, this concept, with violence against women. And this is in 1990, which is pretty hard to imagine that nobody did that before, but... Yes. Um, but what she also wrote in her book was what she calls the three stages of trauma of trauma recovery. And the first stage she calls st st um, um, safety and security. So the idea that I call it the victim stage. And so it, it, obviously before you have any kind of any kind of help, um, you're not going to necessarily be feel safe and stable. And secure, but this is usually what happens in the crisis intervention stage when you identify as a victim, and perhaps you might you might uh, um, uh, call the police, and you're become an official victim in the criminal justice system. But even presenting yourself somewhere, and so safety and stability, they help you stabilize, keep you safe, figure out how to get you out, get you moving, get you through the crisis of this. And sometimes medical people are involved and whatever else. The second stage she calls remembering and mourning which I kind of think of as the survivor stage, where you realize, like we were talking before, that you have been a victim, that there's a, a story to what, there's a background to all this, that not only your background, but the perpetrator's background, that in the, and maybe even your family background. And you sort of begin to see that there have been things that have happened to you in your life that have sort of given you the ability not only to recognize that you're a victim, but to survive. And that resiliency is what you want to you know, sort of bank on, okay, if I could get myself through that, I, what else can I do? And that's sort of when I step in with my program and say, okay, if you think you just survived this, great. But let me tell you, you can do more than survive. I love and what that. She, and what Dr. Herman calls it is the, the reconnection or reintegration. Now, sometimes if women have had, as I said, their polyvictimization, they've had issues since childhood, they've been victimized since childhood, they've never felt integrated or connected. So they're not really reintegrating, but the idea of the, you know, to connect. So Dr. Herman talks about the trauma as a disempowerment and disconnection and the, and the healing, um, the third stage, um, is the reconnection and re-empowerment. That's what I do. Um, and a lot of it can be th psychological, can be therapy, therapy, not all of it. Um, she was a psychiatrist. She is a psychiatrist. She's still alive. Um, but the idea that what I've built is this motivational model to say, okay, you know, you should have a therapist if you, you know, that's good for you. But let's see if we can find other pieces that might be missing beside that really good um, help for you and uh, a sounding board and some some tools that your that your therapist can give you. Um, what I work on is the idea that. You, you probably don't feel a lot of positive energy. How can we get your positive energy going? You may have a focused desire, like you need to get back to work because now you, you're a single mom and got a couple of kids. Mm -hmm. So, but that just seems like God, no, no one ever hired me. And then you have all these fears that have been, all these limiting beliefs about yourself that have been have been spewed out by people your whole life. You're you're stupid. You're not. You'll never go anywhere. You can't do anything without me. You'll never get ahead. Uh, what's wrong with you? You're not strong enough. And all those beliefs just sort of become this wall. So here you come with your idea to go get a job, and it's like boom. Of course you can't get that job. 
And you forget that there's a reward beyond it where you're going to feel really good because the guy that's hurt you doesn't want you to feel really good. But you're going to remember that. So I sort of break that apart and help women to see where they're stuck. Um, and usually they're stuck because they don't have enough pos positive energy to start with um, because all these things have happened to them their whole life. So it's not a, it's not a motivational model that I made up. But it's one that we all experience. But for people who've come through trauma and violence and, and abuse, those roadblocks are huge, even to get even to get out of the bed in the morning sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I sort of break it down. And so it's it's the way I, I call it the seven steps to thriving. The first step, actually, is to even recognize that you're on a journey. I have women who come into my workshop and they're like, I'm on a journey. Oh, I didn't know that. I've been a victim my whole life. And then when I sort of do this exercise and lay out victim to survivor to thriver, what they'll tell me is that they're a really great survivor. And they've been running around this little circle, victim to survivor the whole life. Mm -hmm. And they've never really, and they're like, what's the thriver thing? And I just, you know, I just made this word up. I didn't make it up, but I decided to use it. Um, and it then works. we start to really work on what, you know, healthy, productive individual who has a you know prosperous life ahead of her. She's going to follow her dreams, you know, and they're like, oh, wow, this is great. I want to be that. Mm. So it's really just showing them. And I guess I, did, I didn't make this up and anybody can describe this. Um, many people have this motivational model in their life, but what their motivational um, end point is to make a lot of money. So a lot of people who want to make a lot of money, what do they say? Oh, positive energy. I want to make a lot of money. Oh, I got a really clear. I'm gonna I'm gonna invent the new widget that's gonna change the world. And I have no fear. I have no limiting beliefs. I can do anything. And then they get all their money. Of course, some of these people, as you probably figured out, have made a lot of money in this lifetime. They've come around and start giving it away because <laughs> it really didn't make them happy. But you know what I mean? So yeah. it's not like we don't know this model. We just may got, have gotten stuck or we haven't recognized where the stuckness is. So mm -hmm. I've had women who started singing again and gotten you know back to school and become CEOs of companies. Um, and and I, it's not just me. It's just I can help them get their energy to move again and start to get their okay. desires clear and their fears overcome. And that's really what we all want to do. But um, uh, when we're disadvantaged by the things that have happened to us, it's much harder. So, so I just so. have a question. So um, I know you have the Entering the Thriver Zone, a seven-step mm -hmm. guide to thriving after mm -hmm. abuse. And it's available, um, a sam sample chapter, you've made that available to people. So mm -hmm. I'm going to add that in the show notes so that everybody can download that. I've already had a look at it. And also on your website, you have some other downloadable uh, resources, which is great. So I really want people to go and um, and discover that. Can you give us your website, please? Yes. So it's it's um, www.thriverzone, T-H-R-I-V-E-R-Z-O-N-E. I should probably put that on my name here. Um, and um, there's, there's also a page on that that's myavengingangel.com, which is the name of my workshop. Um, bookshop. The other thing, before I forget that you said this, reminded me, um, is that I, um, so I do this two-day workshop, My Avenging Angel Workshops, and um, it has, uh, initially I had done it, I had done it in person, I live in Connecticut, um, uh, the United States, and, um, but COVID, talk about opportunities, uh, in COVID time, all the bad things that happened, but I I have now, um, I started doing them virtually. So they're now available to anybody who would like, any survivor who would like to come on. And I've had, in, in fact, I've had women not only from the United States, but also from around the world. So that may be something else they can check out. The information is on the website, either uh, through Thriverzone, it's one of the tabs, the, the workshops, and they can register online there off off of that page Incredible. and i'd love to have them come on it's for it's for survivors i do not have them tell their story i i don't we don't i don't have no definition of what that is they can define it um and um and uh it's a two-day workshop and then that that's free of charge um and then i also have follow-up sessions if you come to both sessions of the workshop you can come to free monthly follow-ups and i sort of built this this community of thrivers that are now around the world, which is pretty cool. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> and it's so important to have ongoing support 
things don't just end. Right. Things don't just right. get better, and then you don't yes. ever go back to that place again. Right. Well, and I, it was also been interesting to me, and I really didn't want to just say hi. It was nice to meet you. Goodbye. Great workshop. Is that the women become role models for each other? Mm. And so, women who've been in my group for 10, 15 years, somebody new comes in and like, oh, that's what it looks like to be 15 years out. Oh, that's I want to yes. be that, you know. And so that that kind of role modeling is really it, it's it's you know you can say a lot of words, <laughs> but if people can see what it looks mm. like and. The women who I've met at the workshop, when after they come through the workshop, even during the workshop, I can see their faces just change. Mm. I can see the energy shift. Um, and then when they, they've continued on, it's really hard to remember what they looked like and sounded like <laughs> when I first met them and what, they're, what they look like and sound like and what they're doing yeah, today. Because they're and, sort of looking you know, and like, I'm not there yet, but I can be. It gives them hope, right? Yes. 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 Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for all of your work. You know, I know you wouldn't have changed anything but to have your niece here, but the fact that you were able to change your life work and work from an attorney to also work from an attorney, but specify in certain things and, and help these people. I think it's, I respect that so much because people do need help from people who get it, who understand yeah. And as tragic as it was, sometimes we were talking about this earlier before we hit record on the show. And sometimes it, although we don't see the gifts and tragedies at the moment, right. there always right. are some. And right. the fact that you're doing this work now, you know, you have helped so many people and we, we need you. to help each other. Nobody should live their life. You know, in my lifetime, I hope to eradicate loneliness. It's one of the things that I really mm. feel strongly about. And no matter what life throws at us, if we're doing it alone, number one, you may not heal in the same way if you heal. And right. just, I see the world. I see all these lonely people around the world. Why can't we all just connect, you know? <laughs> And when we're going through well, there, that is one of the things that Zoom did, um, and yes. all the other you know, tools. Um, you know, there, it's opportunity. I, I was saying before, it's it's actually called. There's a term for it: uh, post-trauma growth, post-traumatic growth. So it seems weird that you know um, trauma should bring you growth, or I see it as opportunity. What's the opportunity? And mm -hmm. you know, the way I I wanted to avenge Maggie's death is that there's no way there's not something good that was going to come out of this. You know matter what that is um, and however you define it. And it could be your own personal definition or it could be something you do professionally or something you do, you know, some kind of a charity project, but there's always opportunity. And I think it's not just the way you help somebody else, but how it makes you feel, you know, that you can step out of that loneliness by helping somebody else too. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think I, people realize how you gain more healing and you feel so much better and you receive so much more than what you give. Yeah. You know, and I think if people realize that maybe they would start off by giving in a selfish way, but that's okay. Just start. Right. And then once you see the effect on both sides, then you never want to stop. Yeah, that's true. So I wanted to do one more thing. I did yes. find a picture of my niece. Here she oh, is. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was a beautiful young woman. Very smart. Yeah. Very brilliant. Wanted to do good things. Yeah. And I know you have a video on your website. Yes, there's more about her and um, some pictures. And then uh, the other thing is on that video, it's very short, is there's four women from my group who've come through my program who are, who are staying, who have been in my group for a while, who talk about their experience, not yes. only in terms so of my workshop. And the women always tell it better than me. I mean, I can talk about this, but, you know. I and, watched and, it. It's powerful. Yeah, and, right. and, and yeah. knowing the way these women looked when and how they sounded and what mm -hmm. they talked about, the woman singer on there, Vanessa, wasn't singing when I met her because she associated her music with the abuse and stopped singing. Okay. And then I kind of remembered that thing that Maggie would always say, Aunt Susan, that's so unfair. We have to do something about it. I thought she can't not sing her whole life just because of this guy, you know. And so not only she started singing again, but she started the song on the video was actually written about me. And um, so it's about her journey beyond abuse. So her music became part of that whole healing process. And if that's not cool, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. And it's hard. It's hard. I can't imagine to not associate 
like what like for her to play her music again it's it's big like it's oh, every time I hear the voice I just choke up I mean it's just it's beautiful. so emotional for me it's like absolutely what if this never happened before and I don't know that she might not have without my my encouragement but who knows I mean but then it was like you know who cares it's just not right um and yeah, then the women right. like the, um Susie the who's now the CEO of a company and and uh, Sophia, who has her license as a social worker. So those are all the kind of stories that can inspire, but also to begin to see that, you know, you can do about anything, particularly <laughs> if you have a group around you, groupies around you, or people like you, uh, you, you know, who just can, you know, I think it's a lot about positive energy because, you know, I can't direct it all. <laughs> I'm not that good. But, you know, if I can bring energy and they can, you know, can double up, then I think that's the first step. And they're so... We live in a very fear-driven world, and there's some righteous reasons for being fearful in this world. Um, but I always say to women, you know, there's, there's physical safety is a big fear in our life, and that's a real thing. But most of our fears are just thoughts. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I got rejected in the past, so it's going to happen again. That's a thought, not a thing. And you start to move through those things and realize they are just kind of little shadows that you can just blow through. But you got to you got to get your stuff together. So that's what I sort of put together in my motivational model in the seven steps. I'd love um, so people would love to um, check my books out and my website. And I'm also working now on a train the trainer program to begin to try to integrate this program, train other people to do it, particularly in programs that already exist. I really would like women to um, access it without without cost. That's really important that's to me. Amazing. So. You know, in my spare time, I'm, you know, working on those kind of things. <laughs> yes, you're incredible. <laughs> I have something I want to talk about. All right. So we've talked about how to help the victim. So we call it a victim, the person mm -hmm. that this has happened to. If we know of somebody, and it's not us in particular, but if we know or we see, or maybe what are the signs that we can see, or what are like as a person in somebody else's world or circle how can we help what are some of the most important things that we can do to help someone without having all of this training right you, do you I, know what I mean? I, like, yeah as as a person on the outside right. maybe guessing and and saying well <laughs> i'm not sure but i think there might be going on you know something yeah. going on there well, oddly enough, I think that we actually see a lot of it. And the one of the huge signs that uh, many people miss from the outside is, and it's a clear warning sign, is when your partner, um, abusive partner, is isolating you from family and friends. Yeah. Because he doesn't want people, he doesn't want you telling them what he's doing because they will start, he's afraid they'll put words on it that will make them feel like it's not just them, it's something bigger than them, like abuse or a crime or, he sh no, he shouldn't be hitting you when he does blah, blah, blah. Mm. So isolating, so, and usually that happens where, you know, suddenly a friend of yours who's very close is like, you know, I, I can't go do that, I can't do this. You know, he's kind of, you know, we're going we're gonna to go out together or something. And it may be legitimate, but after a while, it's like, you know, that's happening a lot. You know, I feel like you've, and, and that isolation not only um, uh, makes her feel like she's being closed in, but it serves his purpose to keep her in this little world that's controlled by him. So they I think always the, are together. Like all, yeah. And sometimes that it, that's, you know, and particularly with cell phones now, you know, well, I love her so much. I want to, you know, I want to check out every time, you know, where she's, did she really go to the store? Well, I want to know why she went to the store. So she's not picking up some guy mm, and that's, and, and that's jealousy and that's possessiveness and that's the whole thing. Mm. So yeah, the idea, you know, that maybe, and you know, there are some wonderful men that want to be in their wife's life. I, you know, that's true, but there's a, there's a, there's a definite line there. I think the other thing I I've been learning a lot more. I've been doing a project with another organization that I work for, work with, and that's about financial abuse, controlling money, um, you know, not not having access to money, um, being given an allowance, uh, being told that, oh, I can't go out with you because, you know, he's got me on a tight budget or something. And it may be kind of a little jokey kind of thing, but when you start to put this all together, and I think the other thing that's the 
the most important thing and what happened to my niece is that this is not about physical abuse. And you, you can be, be a coercive uh, control and, and um, manipulation without any kind of physical abuse. So you may not be seeing bruises and, and you know, red marks on the face or, um, and it, it, that's possible. And she may be using makeup to cover it up or whatever, because um, she's embarrassed by it. But those are the kind of things that sort of putting those together. The other thing that I like to tell people who want to help somebody who's in that situation, particularly if it's their daughter or their granddaughter or, you know, a, a family friend or something, is that it's probably not going to be just grab her and get her out of there and just tell her, oh, you know, this is what's happening. She will probably not respond to that because she's afraid of him. Um, and I think she will know the best what the fear level is. So sometimes staying actually is safer than leaving until she can get what we call in the business here a safety plan. And we a should treat plan. that fear as real. We need to trust yes. the person yes. and not just dismiss yes. it. It's like, you well, you know, he's beating the shit out of you. You should be leaving. No, no. And, and it's true. And this happened in Maggie's case. The most vulnerable time for a woman in this situation, even if there isn't physical abuse, is when she leaves. Why is that? He's a controlling person. He's lost control. And so you don't know, even if he never physically assaulted you, that he's going to go to, to something physical because now you put him in a situation where he's completely, completely losing it. So the idea that, and so what a lot of programs do, I don't do this, but, but you know, domestic violence shelters, even in sexual assault programs, because sometimes the two issues sort of come together, uh, many times they do. Is a safety plan, you know, sorting out, you know, if I if I'm going to leave, if I have children, how do I leave? What's the best time of day? When when you know where will I go? Who can I count on? Where you know do I have my social security card for the kids? You know, just all that kind Think of ahead. stuff and that, yeah. you know putting it together. There are uh, across the country and the world, there are many many uh, domestic violence shelters. Um, you can stay there for some period of time. It's a safe place, conflict, but it's not the, you can't stay there forever. So it really is a kind of a plan and then figuring out who you can trust. Mm -hmm. To get out is usually the hardest thing. It may take six or seven times for you to be able to put it together. And what we're finding with the biggest obstacle to getting out is actually, well, the fear, certainly, uh, of what could happen, not only to yourself, but to your children or other people, um, but money. Um, if you're in a, in a coercively controlled or a controlling relationship, he'll usually control the money. So you don't have a thousand dollars for that security deposit. You don't have a car that runs so you can go, you can get a full-time job. You don't have, Starting you don't even know where the over. bank accounts are. Mm. So what I've heard is that that seven or eight times to get out, if you don't have money, it goes up to 30 times. Mm. So the idea that you have to keep working at trying to figure out how to manage all that and really, and that's the thing that I think we haven't done enough in, uh, in the movement to really address that financial abuse. I'm working right now on a project to actually work with the banking industry to oh. see what they can do uh, from their end to recognize that these customers are out there um, and, and that th there might be some things that they could do um, in not denying loans because they don't have a credit history or they have a bad credit history because he ran up the credit cards, you know? Yes. So really trying to think out of the box a little bit, but uh, it, it's, you know, the, the, the best you can do, uh, and I, uh, this is what I tell people, because sometimes it's like, I can't figure out how to help this person, is to educate yourself about the warning signs, what are the resources in your community, and, even, and to not necessarily throw it all at her and say, here, go do this, but to say, I have some information if, when you're ready, uh, we'll talk about it, you know, um, and so you know what, because that's what she'll need. That's what she'll need. Somebody who's not isolated from her, um, but also can give her some good information. And then it may not, it may not happen the first of three and don't times. Judge times. And believe yeah. them when they yeah. tell you. And don't think you understand what this is about because you don't. Um, Do you find, Susan, that um, even despite the money struggle, do you find that a lot of people do leave and then go back because they miss or they still love I mean, Just because yeah. somebody abuses you doesn't mean you stop loving them. Well, I, I always talk about it as there's a, part, there's a part of him that you love. Yes. Um, and there's a part of him that you're scared of. There's a part of him that because of 
that fear, you need to leave. And there's a part of him that you want to stay. I saw this a lot when I was doing divorce work years ago. It's a particularly around Christmas. Mm. <laughs> oh, my God, you know, it's the holidays, and I'm going to stop my divorce because, you know, he's doing so well, and we're having a great Christmas. And then the day after Christmas holidays, I get the phone calls. Okay, that's it. He drank the whole holiday. So, yeah, it's a, it's a wait. And, you know, um, the reasons why women stay is because – not only they they have some love for him or some part of him, they also believe that he's going to change. That he and he could, but the statistics are that most men who change or people who change from that kind of physical and emotional abuse are not going to change overnight. They're not going to wake up some morning and say, "Oh wow." They're going to go through some kind of program, some kind of therapy, some kind of activity, and maybe they'll be better, and maybe they'll never be better with you. So. Um, but yeah, and then and then the other idea is that you want to preserve your family somehow, you know, um, and not break it up. But I think that also if you've been with someone since your early teens and you're now in your 40s or your 50s mm-hmm. and you haven't been in a different relationship, mm-hmm. you might still not see that there's something wrong. Yep, that's true. Like, well, this is how it's always been. Doesn't everybody live like this? Yep. And sometimes it's not until you see somebody else or you hear from someone else what's going on in your home or, you know, and not to blame yourself for not knowing differently. I think we blame ourselves so much, you know, if I wasn't like this and if I wasn't like that. And that's why I think it's awareness is so great. And that the fact that you're talking in in campuses, I think is amazing. I went with my son, um, he's in grade 11 and we went to look at some universities, just, uh, he's a little young still for that, but we went and, um, One of the things I never thought to ask, like you were saying earlier, is what safety measures do you have? And without even asking, um, and we were just a group of boys, there were no girls in our group, they automatically said, um, so we have every, I don't know how many feet, they had the station where you could press a button. It's like a panic Mm. button. Okay. They they demonstrated it for us where the um, security on campus, how long it would take them to get there. Or even if it was just, I feel like I'm being followed and I'm not comfortable and I'm just, I want to get into my dorm, um, push the button. And they had so many of these. And until they said it, I didn't know what it was. But I think it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, And I think think parents can make a difference. If there's enough parents that come to those those visiting days and say, where's your red crisis center? Where do kids go for suicide prevention? What kind of counseling is on this, on this, beside the academic counseling? What if my kid has a problem with blah, 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 what, you know? And uh, some of these campuses that at least in, in over the years now, it's changed a bit. They believe they were kind of like insular, you know, that these things didn't happen from the outside world. So you didn't, you weren't able to go outside to get help, you know, that it was, it was, uh, a sign that you were mentally ill, that you had to go out and get some therapy counseling yes. or whatever. Um, and I think for a lot of kids, particularly kids who've come through COVID, you know, um, there's been some, that because their school has been disrupted, the schooling has been disrupted, mm-hmm. um, the, the, there's a big, big push on mental, mental health st- issues. And not like, you know, we're all schizophrenic and crazy, but, you know, some just real, I'm having troubles on this campus and I don't want to go talk to my mom about it. But to ask those questions and, you know, is there education? Is there, is there a lot of, a lot of schools have used peer counseling actually to work on sexual assault and domestic violence. So you feel more comfortable talking to one of your peers than you might be yes. to somebody academic and, 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 or somebody, you know, who's a, but that kind of stuff, I think a lot of it's because schools are really unsafe, um, particularly around guns. Um, and, um, and so this is an issue that the schools know they have to deal with, not just because they're afraid they're going to get sued, because they want to protect yes. the students. And it's not just this Pollyanna kind of, we're all going to go to school together, and it's going to be fine. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's really, uh, um, it has moved such, so, so vastly, even in the 20 years that Maggie was killed. Uh, at the time Maggie was killed, they didn't have, um, what do they call that, the, the, uh, the the we used to call them fire drills um the um, the active shooter drills you know that's just first of all i think that they're terrifying to me but that's because i live in a different generation Mm -hmm. but the idea that this has become to the top of the you know top of the level but the more parents can reinforce that yeah the more parents can reinforce that i will choose this college 
or not because I don't see that there's enough of, you know, these kind of safety measures there. And some schools are like the school you were talking about, they're actually touting it, which is kind of interesting mm. rather than just, we got great food in the dorms, you know, kind of if thing. anything, yeah. And it, if anything, it <clears throat> prevents it. Cause if people yes. are going on the attack, see all of this stuff, it does prevent it. So Susan, before we go, I just wanted to say that um, we today have been talking uh, about women as being the victims, and mm -hmm. um, I know that's who you work with, and I know that uh, so many more women than men are victims, mm -hmm. um, but I know both men and women listen to the show, and I just want to acknowledge that men, the rise of men being victims is there. Right. And well, I think it, it, I think it also, often. I don't know that that more men are being victimized. I think that men are more likely to come forward these days. Mm. I think we've been particularly, um, some of the men I've worked when I was doing victim, as I was doing offender groups, I actually worked with women who were offenders or at least had been arrested for domestic violence. Um, although sometimes they were victims, but I've also worked with men, particularly in, in a gay, gay male relationships where, you, where one of them is the victim and one is the perpetrator. And it's always much difficult. So um, I think the other group of men that um, has been sure shifted a bit, although many more resources that are available for are victims of male sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the clergy abuse, particularly in the Catholic church, um, a lot of that has raised awareness there. There are a lot more resources, but, um, and I, I've, I've had some men who've approached me to, um, to do a workshop with me who are male sexual assault victims, particularly child sexual assault victims. And I have done, I've done some work at a couple of men's prisons here in the Northeast Connecticut, uh, Northeast United States, and they're very interested in what I do. Some of them are there for you know, killing their spouse or their partner. Some of them are there for violence that was associated with gang violence when they were children or, or young adults. So, but the, they are seeing themselves as also wanting to be on the journey to move beyond what's happened to them. Mm -hmm. And that's not always a conversation that um, is understood. Plus they also realize the impact of witnessing domestic violence as a child. They say that if you witness domestic violence as a child, you are more likely to either become a perpetrator or a victim yourself when you grow up. Or and, work as a change maker. Or work as a change maker, right. And, and I have met a number of men like that who are, um, in fact, recently, uh, several men I've met in, in other careers and other industries will start out by saying to me, my mother was a victim of domestic violence. I was, you know, a kid and I'm, and so I, I, I build digits, but here I am today and tell me what you need, you know, so they it's told true. me. You could go one way or another. It. Yeah. I remember you know, hearing I a story. But I remember hearing a story, um, two brothers living in the same house and, and one brother we asked, well, why don't you drink? And he says, well, my father was an alcoholic. And the other, the other brother was a drinker. And they said, well, why do you drink? And he goes, my father was an alcoholic. Uh -huh, right. That's right. And so you just, and I'm sure that a lot more of them repeat the pattern, but there yeah. are some who just go the other way and just want to help more people because they know how much suffering it goes along with that. Right. And they, to and they totally get it. It's not their field, but mm -hmm. they totally get that there's, this is important. And they start to think about, you know, how, how they could be a role model, even if it's not in, in service, in a particular social services. But um, I mean, I, I used to have regularly have men come in uh, from the community who were role models um, to, the, to the, um, the offender groups and talk to the guys. You know, um, and they would, sometimes they talk about their childhood too. Other times they talk about how they rose from where they came from, and and the guys would just love it. You know, it's like they needed they needed role models. They and, needed to see. Yeah, and as parents of boys, yep. you know, teach them. You don't being masculine does not mean nope. holding your body against somebody who is not a willing participant of any kind. No, no. And, well, I used to tell I used to tell my guys, you know. You can be controlling. You can tell her to, you know, make dinner and do this and not do that, blah, blah, blah. And she will probably do it because she's terrified of you. But will she love you? No. And yeah. if you're looking for love, I don't, yeah, I think I'd rethink that a little bit, you know? They yeah. kind of look at me like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I also see a rise, like, 
I don't know if this is the right show for it, but I have to say, I also see a rise in teenage girls being more controlling. I do. It's possible. And I think mm -hmm. that we all need to just be aware of what is right, what is wrong, teach our children how to love each other, teach the different sexes how to live together. And that, you know, the only person we can really change is ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not easy, but one of the things that you did say, um, you said a lot of great things today. Honestly, you're really <laughs> helping people. But one of the things that you said too was how you can't, you just can't pretend that you're in that person's situation. There could be a thousand victims and all of them have similar threads, but most of their stories are different. Most of what they've gone through is, is different, although they have similarities. You, even between them, you can feel, you can feel the connection because it's so strong, like in your video, like they feel for one another and they understand to a certain degree, but it's still everybody's story is different. So when you're looking from the outside, you need to respect that and you do really need to listen and don't pretend you know how people feel because sometimes that is one of the worst and that is one of the easiest ways to shut down that communication with that person. Right. But I, I, my, my theory of it is that you can show them a path you can, you can help them to get some positive energy and begin to move their energy. And you can also say to them that you can do this, you know, and um, if you've done, if you've, if you've gotten to where you are today, if you can do that, you can do about anything. I always measure my life and the th challenges in my life by my niece's murder, um, how it felt after she, when I found out in the middle of the night that she had been killed and the initial um, things I thought I couldn't get through um, particularly to help my brother and sister-in-law afterwards. And so when I, when I have, you know, like I'm going on, I'm going on a podcast today and it feels really scary. Is that as hard as what I had to put, do with after? No, that's, this is, this is easy. Mm. Um, I, I, I need to gear myself up and I need to get my, you know, get my positive energy and, and quiet down my inner critic and blah, blah, blah. But I try to benchmark things, and I think that's what's really interesting. Because when I say that to women, they're like, you know, you're right. Um, I, I, did, I already did the hard thing. This is something that I can conquer. And I think that that belief that there is that energy inside of you and, and that there is nobody, there's nobody or no thing that can hold you back except yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's really the exciting part of it. Because once they get into that loop where they stop questioning themselves I see them do, I see them do things I didn't even imagine when I met them they could do. And I tell them that, you know, I didn't even imagine this stuff. You know? I mean, I'm just like, um, I'm here, I'm doing this. How beautiful is that? You're giving them a new life. You're giving them yeah. hope. hope. Well, they're, they're giving themselves, a, they're giving yeah. themselves a second chance because you're right. They're telling them, oh, I screwed third, up, you know, or a fourth you know, right. I'm bad and I'm never going to, you know, no, that's, that's, you know. I don't know anybody who hasn't had a struggle in their life. So the only question is, what do you do with it? And how do you do it? Susan, um, my last interview that I just had was about trusting your intuition. Hmm. And th that there's that too, because yep. we, we sometimes talk ourselves out of, out of things. You know, we, we, is this wrong? It feels wrong, but maybe it's just me and trust yep. yourself. Yep. You know, yeah. really trust yourself. Uh, yeah, I use a lot of affirmations. I am strong. I am powerful. I am fearless. Um, I'm a thriver. And, and we keep building that definition. To, I keep saying that we have, it's only a working definition because I don't think we've made it big enough yet. But the idea that there's a part of you that's been untouched by mm -hmm. all that's ever happened to you. And that part of you will not die. It's, it's, a, it's your, whatever the word you use, soul, spirit, mm. um, you know, some people have different words for them. Some people have no words for it, but the part of you can't, and they look at me like, you know, a part of me, I thought everything was destroyed. I'm like, no, everything, there's been an attempt to have everything about you be destroyed, but they can't do that. And that's the part that I think makes them the most crazy, a person who's trying to really take you apart and abuse you. But the idea that that part can rise again, like the phoenix from the ashes, and if you let it really go for it, you don't know what you can 
there are things that you better than I mean, before. Better than before. And another thing I'll say, and I, I'm always very careful about this because people say, well, I don't know about that. Um, but the women I have worked with, and a lot of them have stayed with me. I have an ongoing program. None of them have gone back. And it's not so much that they haven't wanted to or that they haven't had opportunities to, but there's some part of them that says, nope, not going back there. I've worked not going hard. back there. <laughs> I've worked too hard. Yeah. I, I got myself in a better place. And this is who I want to be. Mm. And I don't want anybody else to define me. And the moment, even if they go on a date and, and they call me and say, I want to date," And the first thing, it's like, that was it. I'm done. Okay. I'm done. Stand up. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Love yourself okay. enough to say okay. no enough. <laughs> Yeah, love yourself enough to say enough. So that may be how that they will never return because they have, they have, they have decided that who they are, the full person they are, and the full beauty of their person and their soul and their spirit and their mind and the body and whole thing is that they will not give it away to anybody ever again. Um, and I have had women in my group who have gone, have gone on to really good, healthy relationships. Um, but on their but on their own terms, mm -hmm. um, and they're it's beautiful to see it. Stand up for themselves, yeah, yeah. And you don't want to give your abuser the satisfaction that you're going to continue oh. to hurt forever. Oh no, living well is the best revenge. He doesn't like that at all. <laughs> oh, he she's doing well. She's got this really good job. Oh, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> exactly, and it may pre it may prevent them from doing it to somebody else, saying, "Hey, this it is going to work." Could, just could, well, we're hoping. It, it, they they oh. may have some some moment some some big moment. I'd love to get, I'd love to have groups with guys like this. I tell you, yes. I, I, when I was doing the groups, I'm like, I think I'm going to throw in a little bit about this, you know, the seven steps. But but you know, because because what I do, like I said, it's, it's universal. I just happen to sort of gear it to the women in a particular place and time. But yes. we all want to feel happy. We all want to have goals that match the things that make us happy. Want to have our kids be happy. I mean, we all want to feel safe. Right, we all feel safe. We all want to see ourselves succeed. Whether it's make a lot of money, however you however you define success. Um, so these are all human things we want, and then somehow the disruption is what we're trying to trying to figure out. But I think but there are many people who are who are helping, so that's good. And I love that you're going to campuses. I think it needs to start earlier. I think it needs mm -hmm. to start grade eight, like before kids get into high school. Oh, I've done middle school presentations. Yes, middle school. I love these that. Kids, so these kids know a whole lot more than I do. All right. Good <laughs> for you. Middle school. I am but so they happy. Were, they, were really, they were really cool because they're like, no, my boyfriend, if he did that, that's it. <laughs> um, but some of them I could say, I didn't know that, you know, I, my boyfriend comes down the hall sometimes and hits me on the shoulder. Like, because he likes me. I was like, no. <laughs> you know, Susan, I don't we think yeah, we can't always prevent things from happening, but we can definitely help people live good lives after. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's right. what you're doing. And, you know, I don't, sometimes I can't find the right word in the English language to describe how incredible I think that is. We need people like you. We need people who are going to rise up and help these people. And um, thank you for all the work that you're doing. And oh, you. I know that there, there are women and men that are listening to this that have have taken some really important things away from this conversation. So I appreciate I appreciate that very much. Thank you. All right. Well, tell them to give me a buzz or an email or come join a workshop or or, you know, come help me or donate. I don't know. Um, I, I feel like this is where a lot of the work is going. Um, uh, you know, particularly after COVID, people are getting that there's another step to the healing process than just getting out or getting safe um, and feeling like, you know, maybe there's an, a part of my life that's going to move on. But we do need the, I mean, this has helped me tremendously to be able to focus my work so it's not like it's not important. It's just that it's sometimes not the thing that people are offered. Mm. Um, you know, maybe sympathy is great. You know, support is great. But more. Yeah. it's really about here's how, like I said, point them down a path, give them the encouragement, and really begin to create a community that they can feel supported in, in the way that they need to be supported. Um, and, and to celebrate, you know, the, the really good, the, you know, like when 
Vanessa sang for the first time, you know, it's like, oh yes. my God, this is so great. I'm going to put know? the video in there so everybody can watch yes. and hear the yes. story. Yes. Yeah, I think definitely, cool. that's definitely cool. And yeah, so that's the, that's the, that's the song, the Cinderella song was dedicated to me. Isn't that cool Aww, to have somebody Cinderella. write a song? Yeah, because I, when I do a thing about uh, your favorite children's story and my favorite children's story is Cinderella. Aww. So I always talk about that. And that's then, beautiful. you know, other people have Wizard of Oz or, you know, Mohana or whatever. So, but, you know, really sort of seeing that I, I lived my, I've lived Cinderella my whole life. I love transformations, you Aww. know. So that was kind of cool. I thought, why didn't I always like Cinderella? Oh, it's because I get to see women transform. Oh, isn't that cool? But right. I love that everyone is listening today, but it's not enough. It's not enough to just listen. You guys have learned a lot today. And if this is a topic that you're really passionate about, reach out to Susan, reach out to people in your community and make a difference. You know, mm -hmm. find out how you can help because having the conversation is great, but there could be so much more after. Yep. Yep. There's so much more. There's a lot for it, a lot for you in it. So, yes. so go for it. Yep. Thank you so much, Susan. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's been fun. It's been like, we just like, you know, <laughs> connect like, oh my gosh, we've, we're friends for life. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe or leave a review. See you next week on the Giving Starts With You podcast.